All right, good morning, everybody. Very glad to see you this morning. Before we get started, just a couple of things. We here at the Livingstones Church, we sponsor two Little League teams. One is at the Southeast Little League. We sponsor a little T-ball team there. And the other is at the Southside Little League over here on Ewing. We sponsor a boys minor league team. And so this is a picture of the boys minor league team over here at Southside. And we found out this week that uh, they won second place in their division. And Julie, where's Julian Walding over here? <laughs> Julian Walding's on that team. Got a shirt on this morning. So good job, Julian. You couldn't get first place? What happened, man? Well, it's cutthroat in the Little League, so we'll be firing the manager and coach this year and get a new one, so next year will be first place, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, he missed that day. That was the reason why then. Totally understandable. Uh, the second thing is this afternoon, uh, Buffy Gernt and myself are taking 18 fifth and sixth graders to a week of camp. And I don't know if you saw the weather report, but it's supposed to be in the 90s like almost every single day, and there's no air conditioning in the cabin. So that I bring your kids home alive, would you please pray for your pastor uh, and for my patience over the next week? I'm, I'm sure it'll be good. And then the last thing I want to say is uh, recess. There are two weeks left of recess, which is amazing because when it first started, I thought, oh, this eight weeks will last forever. And it hasn't. It's gone by like that. And now there's only two weeks left. And let me just put a plug in if I might. One, I mean, our volunteers, I mean, Meredith Waltman, all of our counselors, our volunteers, it has truly been phenomenal, been a fantastic uh, six weeks. But earlier, we were asking people to volunteer to kind of help us pull off the recess program. Now, we don't need you. It really is fine on its own. But I still want to say you should take a day. If you Just in the next two weeks, if you've got a day you can donate, you should volunteer for just one day, not for the sake of recess, but for the sake of your own heart and your own spirit, because I think it will help transform you and change you, and you will leave with a greater heart and compassion for the kids at Miami Hills. And if you don't fall in love with DeColdest by the end of that time, that's really his name, DeColdest, by the end of the morning, uh, I promise it will not, it, something will be wrong with you. So if you've got a day you can volunteer, I just want to encourage you to do that just for your own sake over the next two weeks. Fourth and fifth graders, you may be dismissed to your class. Fourth and fifth graders, if you're new in the fourth and fifth grade and don't know where that class is, follow the herd of fourth and fifth graders who are now exiting the room, and you're more welcome to go there. Uh, recess starts about volunteers you get around 9.30 and it goes to about 2.30. 10 to 2 are the times for normal recess. So if you've got a chance, it would be great. Last week we began a look, a two-week series entitled Table and trying to explain communion and a biblical view of communion and how we do communion here. And the reason why that was necessary for us is because what we've discovered is we don't really have a central unifying denomination in which we're all coming from. Like, oftentimes you go to a church and everyone's got a Methodist background or a Lutheran background. Here, you all are so eclectic and you are coming from so many different backgrounds. If we had a vote, I think Catholics win in terms of at least some Catholic background in your, in your history. But what that means for us is we have all taken communion differently based on our experiences growing up. So nobody shows up here with this common unified view of communion. And so I would say over the past couple of years, we've received more questions about how we do communion than any other topic that I can think of. And so I just thought it might be a good idea just to spend a couple of weeks. Let's just talk about a biblical view of communion and how we do it here. And I know some of you, in terms of just even your own experience, maybe even called it different things. Sometimes you called it uh, the Eucharist. Sometimes the Lord's Supper, communion, Holy Communion. Some, some come out of agape feast. I mean, those are all the same words for the biblical view of communion. Now, last week we want to take a historical and theological view of the, the original 
Lord's Supper, like his last supper with his disciples. And what we discovered last week is really his last supper was in the context of the annual feast of Passover. And when Jesus is doing the last supper, he's actually celebrating a Passover Seder meal. So if you were here last week, you got the little to-go thing with the actual emblems and the Seder meals. We had the egg and the the parsley and the horseradish and the carouset. And we kind of did a, a, in mass, a Passover Seder to try to give a picture of this is probably what it looked like for Jesus. And this is probably when he said this and when this happened to kind of give us a better understanding. But in the end, what I wanted us to see last week is the Passover was really a celebratory meal. That in the end, what Passover was, was our time to gather together to recall the story of the Exodus and how God rescued with his mighty arm the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt. And in that same way, Jesus takes that opportunity in the middle of Passover to say, oh, God is once again about to stretch out his mighty arms and he's about to deliver us from the slavery we're in in sin and self-centeredness and deliver us from that slavery in the cross that he's, about, that he's foreshadowing that's about to take place. And so he uses the same emblems of bread that would be the matzah that would be a part of the Passover celebration and he just turns it a little and says, now when you do this, I want you to remember my body. And he takes the wine in the cup and he says, I know that there's four cups of wine and this is how we normally do it, but this is now going to be like the blood of, my co- of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And so he just kind of turns and changes the symbolism a little bit. But in the end, it is still a celebration of rescue and redemption and freedom. And that was the tone of the Passover. But that seems to be different than what most of us have experienced growing up. Like if you grew up in any sort of church or have any sort of church background, most likely you are coming from a background where at communion, there's no celebratory tone. It is probably the most somber, quiet, introspective tone. And we said last week, I think the reason why that is is because we've confused the symbols. The symbol for communion is table. And just think about all the things that happen at table. Like when you gather together for meals at a table, you have shared stories, there's laughter, you have communication, you're talking to one another, you're interacting with one another. But what's happened along Christian history is the table has been, has been replaced with the metaphor of an altar. And an altar has a different significance. When you think of the metaphor altar, it's heavy, it's weighty, it talks about sacrifice, it talks about blood, it talks about suffering, and it is this individualistic, private moment of where we kind of put our heads down, put our hands over our face, close our eyes, don't talk to anybody else, it's just between you and God. It's a heavy altar moment. But I would contend that was never the intent of the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper or of communion. The proper metaphor has always been table. And we need to figure out how is it that we can bring back this idea of table, that it's something else, it's communal, it's interactive, it's dynamic, it's alive, it involves conversation. Imagine for just a moment you going with your friend out to to eat lunch and you're sitting around a table and neither one of you are making eye contact the entire time you're there. Wouldn't that be weird? Wouldn't that be awkward? That's awkward when it comes to table. In fact, it would be considered rude for us to sit together at a meal at table and not have any sort of eye contact. And so we want to sort of reclaim table as the operational metaphor of communion. And in it, the Gospels give us a ton, especially the Gospel of Luke. In fact, the Gospel of Luke, that's an ongoing theme, Jesus' table ministry. Because Jesus spends a lot of time eating, and that's why I can follow him. Because he spends time eating, I want to spend time eating But watch what he does, especially the Gospel of Luke. His ministry at the table is shared with all sorts of people. I mean, holy, righteous Pharisees who keep the law to every last, you know, every last detail. And you know who else he shares table with? To the worst of all sinners, to prostitutes, to tax collectors. In fact, 
He is criticized in his ministry often that he's willing to share his table with people that others don't think are worthy of his table. Now that in itself should be instructive to us about table ministry of Jesus and what it should look like. And as we talked about last week, that's why we celebrate an open communion. What we mean by open communion is it is open and everyone is invited to the table of the Lord. And I don't care how sinful you are or how not righteous you are, that's the point of Jesus' table. Nobody gets there because they're worthy. Nobody gets there because they're righteous enough. Nobody gets there because they think, you know, I've only committed one sin this week, and so I think I'm justified. No, no, we all get invited to the table because of Jesus' grace and mercy and invitation, and that's the only reason. And so when we gather at the Livingstones Church and take communion, everyone is invited in an open communion, which means you don't have to be a part of this church, you don't have to belong to a particular denomination. And for some of you come out of those backgrounds, like, you know, if a Catholic background, you don't get to take the Eucharist unless you're Catholic, otherwise you come up for a blessing. Not here, everyone is invited to the table. Now, having said that, open communion doesn't mean it's open to anything. Like anyone, I mean, we're not here to celebrate Buddha. We're not sitting at the table to celebrate Muhammad or Abraham or Moses. Jesus is the host of this table, and he's the one who's invited us. We come together recognizing Jesus is still the center of this table, but that's what we mean when we say open. But in that, I think there is proper table etiquette. And most of you probably learned your normal table etiquette from the home you grew up in, which I'd be great to share stories about, yeah, this is what eating together was like in my house. For example, in my home growing up, this is what it was like. We had dinner every night at 5 p.m. sharp, no exceptions, which is weird to me because now Kelly and I are like, I don't know, we might eat at 6.30, maybe 8 o'clock, maybe you'll be lucky to get a meal tonight altogether. I mean, who knows where we're at. But in my house growing up, 5 o'clock every night, I, no matter where I was in the neighborhood playing with my friends, I had to be home at 5 o'clock to eat because that's when Dad was coming home. And so when Mom set the food out on the table, we quickly load our plates as much as we could get on there, right? Because you didn't know if there was going to be seconds. And so we, not because we were poor, it's just we, that's the way it worked in our house. So, and as we talked, we were very loud. We didn't use china or fancy plates that could break. We had that hardcore, it could be hit by a truck, and we're still going to be able to use the same plate. We only had the utensils that we were going to need for that particular meal. There was no fancy lapkins in our lap. It was very utilitarian. And if mom had a burp, she just burped. That's what it was like in my house. <laughs> Where is my mom? Is she in here this morning? Is she? Good. Let's talk about her for a while. <clears throat> well, then I met Kelly. And Kelly obviously grew up in a different home, and so I went to St. Louis to visit Kelly's family for the very first time, and we sat down to eat dinner, and everyone at that table had, like, the napkin on their lap. And did you know there's a, a, a proper way to grab a plate of something and then to pass it a certain way in order? Did you know that? We didn't know that growing up. We didn't do it at our house. It was just a free-for-all. And when you took it, you just took a little modest portion. So the first time I'm there and I'm making the mountain of mashed potatoes... Nobody else seems to be doing that. They're just taking a very modest portion on their plate, and the conversation is very polite and very respectful. They use nicer dishes. They're still simple people. It wasn't like fancy china, but if I dropped it, I bet it would have broke. And my mother-in-law never burped at the table. (laughs) And you might have grown up learning your own table etiquette. I don't know. Chew with your mouth closed. Keep your elbows off the table. Put your napkin in your lap. Ask for something that you need at the table with a please rather than reaching over three plates to get it yourself. You might have grown up in a home where you didn't just ask, are you going to eat the rest of that? But that was a common question in my house, and it usually ended up at my dad's spot. No burping, this is your salad fork, this is the fork for your main meal. That might be how you grew up. (laughs) This is a kid burping, but my question is, do you see the assault rifles on the wall? (laughs) 
Is that normal in households? Okay, anyhow. It's to this idea of table etiquette that I want to go because the Lord's Supper has a table etiquette. There really are just appropriate manners that are due to the Last Supper, to the Lord's Supper, to communion, and the early church very quickly messes that up, much to the chagrin of the apostles who have to come in, and Jesus at the time has to come in and correct what is bad form and bad table etiquette at his table. So let's talk, if we might, for a moment, just some of the violations of table etiquette. Number one, arguments over who is the greatest are considered rude at Jesus' table. Okay? Arguments over who is the greatest are considered rude at Jesus' table. It is at the Last Supper itself. Jesus just gets done passing the bread, passing the cup, focusing on himself, what's about to happen in terms of redemption history, and right out of that, in that exact same meal, in that exact same moment, the disciples get into this argument with one another. This is what it says in Luke chapter 22. This is the Lord's Supper account, verse 24. Also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Now, wouldn't you have loved to be part of that conversation? I would have just loved to hear the arguments over, well, I'm the best because of this, and I'm the greatest because of this. And Thaddeus is in the corner thinking, I didn't get much airtime. I don't know if I qualify here. And so it's just this big controversy that takes place. And Jesus comes in, in the midst of this bad table etiquette, to say in verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. Right? They're all given titles, and they all have, this is my spot and my place. But he says in verse 26, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Now, look, Jesus, the host and leader of this table, says, I'm sitting here as one who serves. And we know from John's account, he just got done washing the disciples' feet. And they still go on to argue over who's the greatest. But I'm among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What Jesus is saying is, my supper is a great leveling of everyone at this table. Jesus alone has the place of supremacy and honor, and the rest of us have been invited to the table by his grace, and he invites us as equals. What that means is nobody at Jesus' table is greater than anybody else. And I don't care what your story is, what your background is, whether you've been in Jesus for 50 years or whether you've been in him for a week, we come to the table as equals. It doesn't matter whether you're old, young, white, black, rich, poor. There's a great leveling, great uh, equalizing effect that happens at the Lord's table. And any presumption of greatness is just bad etiquette at Jesus' table. He does not allow it. And yet, ironically, I think for most of us, we come out of backgrounds, church backgrounds, where you see exactly that. That the only ones who can serve at the Lord's table are what? Those who are the clergy. And so what you'll have in many denominations, unless it is the pastor, the clergy, and they got the nice robe on, probably it's not a tie-dyed shirt, I promise you. I mean, they're the only ones that can serve at the Lord's table. What I would say is, I think that's bad table etiquette in that at the table there's a great leveling and there is no longer those distinctions. Some of you might have grown up like I did in a denomination where, did you know that the Jesus' table was the only table we didn't let women serve at? And so when we grew up, I mean, women didn't do, they didn't pass out any plate, they didn't have any, and why is that? It simply uh, seems to be an introduction of a hierarchy that was never intended in Jesus' table, which was that great leveler. 
And so in the end, any arguments or any presumption that I'm the best or I'm the greatest or most spiritual, all those things are inappropriate. I can still remember as a kid having to explain to a friend that I might bring to church that when we took communion, they couldn't take it with us. And that awkward conversation, well, why not? Well, because you weren't baptized yet or because you're not. I mean, and, and now I look back, I think that is a violation of table etiquette where Jesus freely invites those to his table based on his grace. And so let's just move forward in terms of the, the biblical account. When you get to the book of Acts, here's the only thing I want us to note in Acts. We simply note that the Lord's Supper is, is described in the narrative of the book of Acts. And in it, what we see is they don't follow the Jewish tradition of Passover, which is once a year. It seems that they're taking the Lord's Supper regularly. And so you have this comment in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That language of breaking of bread is the way that Luke talks about communion. It's technical language that Luke uses in the gospel and also in the book of Acts to refer to communion. A couple verses later in verse 46 of the same chapter, he says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor. Now, listen to this. They broke bread together with what? Glad and sincere hearts, which doesn't give you the picture of funeral, right? Or that dour, head bowed, those, I mean, it's sort of a celebratory tone. Praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Later in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, in the city of Troas, we note that the church there seemed to take communion once a week, on the first day of the week, which for us would be Sunday. And so it says, Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, we, we came together to break bread. That's the language for communion. And the reason why even in church history, the first couple hundred years of church history, what we know based on the early church fathers and their writings, that seemed to be the norm, weekly observance of communion on the first day of the week, because the first day of the week became that this is Resurrection Sunday that they celebrated together. So here are the other issues we could talk about. How often should we take communion? Some of you come from backgrounds where you took it quarterly, maybe once a year, who knows when. Here's the answer. The Bible gives us no prescribed times to take communion. It just doesn't. You can read from beginning to end, and it never says, you should take communion this time or this time or this time. And you've got different examples. Jerusalem seemed to do it daily for a period of time. The church in Troas did it once a week. In Corinth, Paul simply says, as often as you do this, which means who knows how often you're getting together. But that's just you could see some of the, uh, the how often should we take communion. Now, let's go back to our messed up etiquette, okay? Let's pick up with that. Where I want to go next is 1 Corinthians. Because Paul probably spends more time dealing with communion in his letter that he sends, the first letter he sends to the Corinthian church than in any other document in the New Testament, and it is a direct response to what is bad etiquette. Now, the Corinthian church has a lot of issues already. As you read through Corinthians, you can discover there's lots of division and factions, there's sexual immorality, there's Corinthian society and cultures invading the church rather than the gospel invading society. So there's lots of issues. But here's where Paul begins. I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Let's talk about more bad etiquette at the Lord's table. Verse 17, this is what Paul says. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. <laughs> How's that for an opening right there? Just makes everyone have warm fuzzies. Oh, this is great. Okay. In regards to the Lord's Supper, how they're doing communion, Paul says, I've got not one good thing to say to you, like no praise. In fact, it'd be best if you not even do this than how it is that you're doing it. So that's how he starts. Verse 18, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. So the first thing he's noting is, it is bad table etiquette to have divisions as you're taking communion. Now that didn't, now that wasn't just a Corinthian problem, right? I mean, that's still 2,000 years later, this is an issue for the Living Stones Church. Do we have divisions among us? Is there factions among us? It is bad table etiquette to live in that together. 
He says in verse 19, and I think he's being sarcastic here when he says this, which he does often in Corinthians as he's dealing with their issues. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. But then he goes on in verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. I mean, I know you're eating a meal, but don't call that communion, don't call that the Lord's Supper. It is something entirely different than what was ever intended in the Lord's Supper. He goes on and says, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without even waiting for anyone else. And one remains hungry, and another gets drunk. Now, we use that Welsh's grape juice, so unless it's just been sitting out too long and it's already fermented, we will have struggles with this drunk part. But it seems in the Corinthian church this is a real issue. Verse 22, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? You hear that? Humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he, gave, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so what's happening here is uh, you've got this issue of, oh, they're totally messing up the Lord's Supper. Now, just a few historical facts to help put this together. And I don't want to lose you, so don't get lost in some of this history lesson here. But the context, don't forget. Do you remember where they're meeting? Do you remember what they, where they meet in? They, they meet in homes. Like the first couple hundred years of the church's history, they did not meet in buildings that would never look at anything like this. They met in one another's homes. In fact, we know Paul wrote his letter to the Romans from Corinth. And he says in his letter to the Romans in chapter 16, verse 23, Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church enjoy, send you his greetings. So the church in Corinth met in Gaius' house. And typically, he was probably a wealthy individual, and he had more room than anyone else, and that's why he could have the church there. And usually in wealthy homes in Greco-Roman society, they would have a banquet room for such a meal, for such meals, because meals were very commonplace in the first century. And there would be a banquet room, and it could probably hold up to 40 to 60 people. And that's the context that they're working in. So when you hear this, don't think they're sitting in chairs looking at the front of a, of a stage. No, they're in a home sitting around a table. That was their context. Now, Paul here describes several problems. There's divisions and factions. They weren't waiting for the whole church to get together. Instead, they ate the Lord's Supper as their own supper, and the wealthy got the bulk of the food while the poor were excluded. That's what was going on. Now, the interesting thing is, that is very much what would happen in a typical meal in the Greco-Roman world. Now, let me talk about meals. And if you were a good Roman living in the days of Jesus and kind of in, or in Corinth in the time of Paul, the typical meal had two main movements. There was two movements to it. The first was called the depnon or the actual supper. This is where the substance of the meal, the food that you would eat. But then after that would be what's called the symposium. That's where we get our word symposium. And that's where you just drink. It was sort of like a drinking party. And those were the two main movements of a typical Greco-Roman meal. You would enjoy the depnon, the supper aspect, and then afterwards you would adjourn to the, to the symposium, which is where the best wine would come out and you'd spend time drinking. And because of this, Greco-Roman meals were occasions of social stratification, meaning very hierarchical in terms of poor versus rich. There was drunkenness was always an issue, and disorderliness was always an issue, and yet meals were very commonplace throughout Greco-Roman society. In fact, some of uh, the, the writers and philosophers of the day, like Plutarch is one, he actually wrote a book called Table Manners in AD 100 to try to give some instruction on, hey, this whole symposium thing, there should be some manners to this, and so he tries to write about that. But ancient meals were very hierarchical, which means the best seats 
and the best food and the best wine and the best company and the best entertainment were reserved for the affluent and for the noble born and for the free and for those who are prestigious. If you were not in those categories and you were on the poor end of things or you were actually a slave, you did not get to enjoy the best food, the best wine, the best company, the best seats, the best entertainment. You were relegated to another place. And even some pagan philosophers and rhetoricians complain about it at the time, about how those Greco-Roman meals seem to be such places of division. Another thing that happens in Greco-Roman meals, ancient meals were often characterized by disruptive speech and argumentative cliques. Like just, you know, that's what happens. You get enough wine and you're starting to get a little bit loose-lipped and all of a sudden you're arguing over this and you're fighting over this and they start to become disruptive. That several religious guilds and fraternal organizations actually had to adopt what they called rules of order on how we conduct ourselves during the symposium or the evening meal. And another thing was ancient meals often dealt with the problem of drunkenness. It's a regular problem because the quantity and quality of wine was very important if you were a wealthy individual. And they would even have an attendant, a servant there, whose only task was to make sure that the best quality and quantity of wine was always available. Now, you get a little snapshot of that even in Jesus' ministry. Do you remember the first sign he performs? He goes to that wedding in Cana. Remember that? And he turns all the water into wine. Do you remember what the attendants say and all those, what the host says about the wine? He says, man, this is better than the stuff we served at first. Because you, you serve all the best stuff first. And when people are kind of little, you know, little buzzed and don't really know any better and don't really care. But Jesus' wine was fantastic. And so that's some things that were happening. Now, listen to this. All of those issues that would be a part of the normal Greco-Roman meal were being reflected in their Lord's Supper in Corinth. The rich were divided, them, divided themselves from the poor, so they ate and drank everything. The poor showed up, and it says they got nothing. The poor arrived later. All the food and drink were gone. And then the poor, when hungry, get to, got to watch the, the wealthy, well-fed, and now drunk. And the end result is, instead of the gospel transforming the Greco-Roman world, the Greco-Roman world was transforming the Lord's Supper. Does that make sense? Did I lose you? Are we still together? That's sort of a background in terms of the... So this is why Paul then moves to his discussion about proclaiming the Lord's death. He describes, this is, what, this is what it looked like. Jesus took the bread and he gave it as his body. He took the cup and gave it and said, this is my blood, remember me. And as often as you do this, you declare the Lord's death. Now, what he's saying this is, it's the reality of the cross. Now, this doesn't mean that the table becomes an altar. Like we talked about that, right? I don't think Paul says, so bow your heads and become serious because this is an altar time. What he's trying to get them to see is, the table etiquette is informed by the cross. To be shaped by the cross means that we permit the values of the gospel, which the cross embodies, to shape then the environment of our table. The table must embody the gospel. And what that means is it reflects the gospel values that we all come here by grace, that nobody is over anyone else. There's no rich. There's no poor. There's no social stratification among us. There's no people going hungry while some of us get well-fed. Some are getting drunk. Others are thirsty. It proclaims that we have unity in the body. And that's what it means, I think, when, G- when Paul's saying, this is what it looks like and we proclaim the Lord's death. He's pointing back to the cross to say, the cross is what sets the tone and the environment for the values that we share at the table. But he goes on, this is what it says, verse 27. Here's the next passage. Verse 27, he goes on and says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, now, catch that phrase in your mind, in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That's some serious stuff, isn't it? Sitting against the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 20, a man then ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And this is what he says in verse 30. 
This, that is why many among you are weak and sick. And a number of you have fallen asleep. Not like you're taking a nap in church. I mean, like, he means dead. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being, a, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home. So when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And then when I come to you, I will give you further instructions. So let's go back to this little phrase, in an unworthy manner. What, what does that mean? Well, don't divorce it from the context of what Paul has just been talking about. What has Paul just been talking about? What have they just been doing? Getting drunk. The poor and the rich are being divided. There's divisions. There's factions. This seems to be the context when Paul moves into in an unworthy manner. We need to go back to, well, what was he just responding to? And so in that, never do you see the problem that the Corinthian church had was during communion, they didn't bow their head and think about the crucifixion of Jesus. Yet when I grew up, I was taught that if you didn't think about the crucifixion of Jesus, then you were taking it in an unworthy manner. Some think that when, when, when the, what does it mean that when they bowed their heads, it wasn't as somber as it should have been, or they actually made eye contact with other people, or was it that they thought about their to-do list for after church, I need to get this done, I need to get that done? No, none of those things were their issues. It was division, social distinctions, not waiting on one another, and getting plastered. Unfortunately, we have allowed this phrase in an unworthy manner to become a bottomless pit for anything we think is inappropriate during the Lord's Supper. So depending on what you grew up in, anything now qualifies. If you whisper during the Lord's Supper, that's unworthy manner. If you talk, if your mind wanders, if you don't meditate in silence correctly, if you don't confess your sins, we've all lumped all of those things into an unworthy manner. And what I want to say is, I don't, Paul, based on the context, isn't saying any of, any of those things at all. What he says is, so you ought to examine yourself, and what does he say? And then go on to discern the body of Christ. We'll talk about that for a moment. That examination of self in light of the body of Christ, to discern the body. Now, I grew up in a tradition where that meant you had to think about the body of Jesus on the cross. I know others have said it's concentrating on that subjective state of introspection where you discern the seriousness of their act of communion and reflect on the meaning of the death of Christ. And some have said that it's exclusively to think about the cross. But I don't think Paul means that for any of those things. In fact, for the Apostle Paul, do you know what his favorite metaphor for the church is? Like when he talks about the church and he uses a metaphor, you know what the, the most common metaphor he uses is? The body of Christ. When he refers to the church, the people, the church, he refers to them as the body of Christ. And what he's calling for is an examination of your place in the body of Christ or the church. I think what he's asking is, are there divisions among you? Are there social stratifications taking place? Are some getting all the food and the others are not? Are some getting drunk and others are thirsty? What he's asking is, would you discern the body? And the best place I ever saw this lived out in terms of just real live, uh, Kelly and I in 1997, this was back when my 15-year-old was like six months old, uh, we... I wanted to go, I was really into Anabaptism, like just the theology and the groups that practice. And Anabaptism is basically made up of three different groups, uh, Mennonites, the Amish, and the Hutterites. Have you ever heard of the Hutterites? Anyone ever heard of the Hutterites? Yeah, most of them haven't. But Hutterites, uh, they're, they're very similar to the Amish. They have some distinctions. But they live in common, they have common uh, communes is where they live. And there's one in Farmington, Pennsylvania. So Kelly and I take this vacation. We want to go visit a Hutterite community. In the back of Kelly's mind, I think she was worried we're going to join one. I never really wanted to. I just wanted to check out this Hutterite community. But Hutterites have, on average, 10 to 12 kids. 
Like that's how the size of their family, typically 10 to 12. And they all live in one area. It's a communal living space. And the one that we went to in Farmington, Pennsylvania, the way that they supported themselves was they had a, 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 printing, a printing press, a publishing house, and they also manufactured playground equipment for handicapped children. And everybody in the community had a job. You either worked at the press or you worked at the manufacturing the playground stuff. You did laundry. You were a cook. I mean, everybody had a role. Everybody had a function. Unlike the Amish, the Hutterites encourage public education in high school, and they want you to go on to get college degrees because the community needs a lawyer. So there's somebody there who's been trained as a lawyer. They come back to the Hutterite community. They have a doctor. They have, I mean, their teachers have all been certified. That's kind of how it works in the Hutterite community. But they also have a common meal together. And this is the picture of the, the dining hall in the Farmington, Pennsylvania Hutterite community. They call them Bruderhofs, which in German means the house of the brethren. And that's where they lived. But what they did is breakfast you ate just with your own personal family. And it would be in your apartment, and so it would be divided in terms of, you know, how to, if you're single, you'd have a smaller apartment. If you had a large family, you have a bigger complex. But lunch and supper, they ate together in this common meal, in this dining hall, and so they all gathered together. But the day that we were there, uh, we were having lunch in the, the, the little family that was kind of giving us a tour and hosting us. We had lunch in their apartment. And I wondered why we're not eating in the dining hall with everybody else, like in the big common space. And what he said was, the reason why they're not eating in the common uh, meal uh, is because the leaders of that Hutterite community recognized that they weren't getting along. Like people were not getting along with one another, this group was upset with this group, and this person wasn't talking to this person, and there were some irritations and some grudges that were being held. And so what the leaders did is they said, we will not gather together to eat this common meal until you take care of all these petty things that are going on. And so the instructions were, if you weren't talking to your brother or sister, you had to make that right and reconcile. And when they sensed that the community was finally unified, then they'd come back and eat the common meal. It is probably the best living example I think Paul is referring to here in 1 Corinthians 11. It is a community that totally recognizes that unity is a big deal. And if they don't share it together as a community of faith, we're not going to sit down at the same table and pretend that we do. Because there's a horizontal dimension to their life together. And I wonder, what would that look like if the elders of Living Stones Church, on a time when we would normally take communion, got up and said, well, we normally take communion at this time, but we have sensed that some of you here are at 1130 because you're not talking to somebody who goes to 930. And we also know that some of you are taking this back hallway because you don't want to run into somebody who's walking through the side hallway. And we just had a sense of there's divisions, there's petty arguments, there's you know, those sort of factions. And, and so because of that, we're not going to violate table etiquette, the Lord's table, by having that sort of disunity and division among us. And so we just, until that's taken care of, we're not taking communion again. That's probably, my guess, the best picture, I think, of what is happening in terms of Paul's letter to the First Corinthians. What he's saying is we're to take Jesus, his intentions for supper for us, that gospel's reflected in that table. And we should ask ourselves, is Jesus' value being manifest when we take communion together? Or are there divisions or factions or hierarchical order or social distinction? Is someone being left out? Are we not waiting for one another? Is someone getting drunk? And it's interesting, for Paul, he says, don't you have homes to eat in? And what he's saying is, it's like this. If, you can't, if you're so famished when you get together that you can't wait on everybody else, then go through Taco Bell and get yourself a little snack. I mean, that's what he's saying, right? Like, if it means you can't wait on your brothers and sisters because you're so hungry, then eat a snack before you show up. This is real practical, uh, real practical uh, stuff. But ironically, and if I feel bold to suggest, uh, even here for us, Livingstone's Church, I think our dour, somber, privatized experiences would be yet another example of exactly what Paul criticizes, cutting community off from one another. That's what the table is always about, communion with God and communion with one another. And when it becomes so individualized, then we don't get to live out what Jesus intended all along. The communion has become for us simply a vertical exercise between God and I. And it's part that, 
but also in part it's horizontal where it's also about our brothers and sisters. Which leads in, so where do we go from here? Because you, and right, usually during communion, somebody gets up and makes comments about the sacrifice of Jesus. We talk about his suffering and the cross. And then we sing a slow song. We kind of bow our heads and the trays come by. I mean, that's our practice. So where do we go from here? Here's what I'd say. In practicality, we're meeting in a building with hundreds of other people, so tables are a little bit difficult. They just are, right? And I'm totally for we should have fried chicken every single week here at the Living Stones Church. But practically, that doesn't seem to be happening very well. My ideal portrait of communion is that it happens in homes, like in that small group structure where everybody, kids, families, they're all together at that table. Everyone is present, even friends and guests, and we eat together a full meal. And in that meal, there's stories, and there's laughter, and there's community, and in the middle of it, there's bread on the table, and there's wine on the table, or grape juice, and somebody at the table breaks the bread, passes it around, and in the midst of our, of our conversation says, do you know why we're all here? You know why we're in a relationship like this? Do you know why we get to enjoy this time together? Because of Jesus. And then we just break that bread, we take it and remember Jesus. And then they pour a cup of grape juice or wine, passes around the table, and says, do you know why we're able to experience this together? Why we have been able to, by grace, be engrafted into the same family together? You know why that happened? Because of Jesus. And then we all raise a glass to Jesus and remember what he did for us. And in that, that's what I think it probably looked like for the first couple hundred years to celebrate communion. So this week, Greg Fronar, creative arts pastor, walks into my office and sits down and says, so then what does this mean for us? Like, like if what you're saying is right, like altar is not our metaphor, table is our metaphor, and table is how we should do communion, and we ought to bring back those horizontal. I mean, how do we do this here? I mean, should we stop doing the head bowed, quiet, silence, introspective, so what do we do? And I think it's a great question, and I don't have an answer. <laughs> so as we're having the conversation, trying to think through, well, what... I mean, what should it look like? Here's what we kind of thought through. And, and uh, we don't have definitive answers, but I do. This is a bigger question about worship here at the Livingstone's Church. I think there is several movements that should happen in worship. Like, number one, I think we should gather together and we should simply ask for and expect to receive a greater vision of who God is. Like, just as we begin, we just want to focus on God and who He is. Because if we can get a revelation of that, that will change everything. Because when people walk in here, they might not be walking in for the first time with this burning question. I've got a question about communion. I sure hope the whole service revolves around that. I mean, that's typically not how it works. But if they step foot in here and they get a greater revelation of who God is, it will change everything for them no matter what they're walking in and no matter what they're dealing with. And so you could do it all sorts. You could do it through song, through scripture, through, I mean, there's lots of creative ways that could lead us to have just a greater vision of who God is. But I also think, you know, that introspective time, that quiet time, that somber time, I think that's very appropriate like a chance to be at altar and confess sin, I think it's very appropriate. So what if you start with the first movement is just all about who God is, but then the second movement is we ask then God to give us a revelation of who we are. And not to overwhelm us or depress us, because I mean, but in his mercy and grace that we get to see that really is who I am. And I really do think those things. And I really did do those things. And that really is in my heart. Because I'm telling you, any time we gather together and we catch a greater vision of who God is and a revelation of who we are, and those two things come together it will be life-transforming. And just think of all the different ways. You can do it through song, through scripture. Or just, yeah, let's just take time. Whether it's just a time of silence or a time just to reflect on, on co- to confess our sin. Whatever it is we want to do, just to get a revelation of who we are. But we can't stay there. That's not where our story ends. Because after that comes the cross. 
which is for us that symbol where God and who all he is decided to receive us and who we were. Our messed up, wretched, pathetic selves, he put us together at the same, right, through the altar, through the cross, through Jesus. He reconciled us together. And there has to be that declaration of good news that God who is all-powerful, almighty, all the things we want to see, has accepted us to be in his family. He has chosen us. He has adopted us to be in his family. And you know what the fruit of that is? Table. That's the fruit of that. And so table is not the time for introspection. Um, There's time for that elsewhere, but table is the time for celebration. Table is the time where we get to sit down with the Lord and recognize we get to celebrate our story of redemption and rescue, that we once were enslaved, but now we are free. And so maybe in that, I mean, maybe communion then is the time where we have our greatest anthemic or celebratory or high praise or high energy songs. Maybe we should just say out loud that we are finally going to give ourselves permission that when we're taking communion, we can actually make eye contact with people around us. We can actually wave if we want to at somebody around us. Maybe we could just speak to one another even during it. And I don't mean like, hey, did you catch the Colts game this afternoon? I mean, I don't mean that. I mean like maybe we could speak spiritual things and pray for one another and maybe we can live out together what table is always entered to be. Not altar, but the fruit of altar, table. That we get to live out what God intended from the very beginning. God fellowshipping at table with his creation. And as we mentioned last week, you know this is where we're headed, right? I mean, in the book of Revelation, at the end, you know, you know what happens? Table. Not altar. That's already done. Table. It is that great wedding banquet that we get to celebrate the unity of the groom that is Jesus with his bride, which is the church. And so table is that place where we get to celebrate God has extended us all an invitation. And when we gather together, we do so recognizing we are all equals whether rich or poor, black, white, it doesn't matter whether you're a woman or a man, whether you're old, whether you're young, it, none of that matters. We all have received that invitation at the table, and that is what we celebrate. So this morning, here's my encouragement. We're about to take communion together, and here's how we're going to do it. It's up here at the front, and I want to invite you just to come on up front and take communion. So there'll be a song they'll be playing, but we're welcome, and, and it'll be a little congested, right, because of the little... little uh, side aisles here, but that's okay. So if you rub shoulders with other people, that's all right because we're at table together. We're not trying to ignore everyone. And you have explicit permission to look around the room, to make eye contact. If you want to give somebody a high five on your way to the table because of the rescue we've received in Jesus, you have permission to give a high five. But we want to celebrate with the values that I think Jesus intended from the very beginning, that we are now gathering together as community. It is vertical. It's because of what God did, but it's also horizontal, which means You are my brother, and you are my sister, and we've been made one because of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we get to celebrate. Amen? So let's pray, and let's share that together. Father, we come to you and thank you that you are a God who has rescued us by your mighty arms, by outstretched arms, even on a cross. You have decided to rescue us, and you have granted to us what none of us would have ever thought possible, and that is a seat at your table. So we acknowledge you, Lord Jesus, at the host of this table. We acknowledge that you are the one who has extended this invitation, and we just come to say thank you. We know we haven't earned it. We don't deserve it. We've done nothing to merit a place at your table. We just simply come to say thank you. And I also ask, Lord, that you would give us courage. If there's something we need to repair this morning, a broken relationship, if there's a grudge, if there's something that we're not forgiving, if there's tension or division, that we would make that right this morning. But we want to celebrate that we all get a place at your table as equals in your house. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. The table is open.